three to beam up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be going at warp speed as we watch and review all installments of the Star Trek movie franchise. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Transmit now. Today we're talking about Star Trek Into Darkness, starring Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Zoe Saldana, Benedict Cumberbatch, Carl Urban, John Cho, Alice Eve, Bruce Greenwood, Simon Pegg, Peter Weller, Anton Yelchin, and directed by J.J. Abrams. This is Mr. Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A.? This is Arnie. Have I got your attention now? Sorry, Arnie. You just don't have the pipes that Benedict has. Nice try, though. And I was wondering how you do the title. Is it Star Trek Into Darkness? Like Star Trek Nemesis? Or is it Star Trek Into Darkness? I say it's Star Trek Into Zero Dark Thirty, but we'll get into it. <laughs> Welcome back to our Star Trek retrospective series. This is like the second series we ever done. It's been four years and give you guys some reference. When we were doing this series back in the day, my daughter was just Born. I was editing the series in the hospital bed while she was sleeping next to me, and now she's running around making noise outside the door now as we are recording this. It's been four years since we left this series. Unbelievable. That is hilarious to me. It does make me feel, yeah, nostalgic, strangely. And I remember this was the debate show. Star Trek 2009 was the first time we went well beyond 60 minutes. I think it was like a 70-minute show, and we were like, oh, my God. Can we release this? Will they revolt if we make a 70-minute show? <laughs> well, now we go 80 minutes on Supergirl. So, you know, it's just times have changed. <laughs> the show has evolved. We have evolved. Yes. I listened to the unedited recording of Star Trek 2009 to remind myself of that conversation. And I couldn't believe that we went two hours and five minutes. But I remember spending that whole weekend cutting, cutting, cutting. Tyler Perry, cutting room floor, harsh with that show. Yeah, and now I thought that was the one show in our entire history where I cut too much out of. And when we did our fifth anniversary DVD-ROM set, those lucky few donors were able to hear our entire uncut conversation. I went back and listened to it myself, and it's amazing how much I agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> I rewatched the 2009 version before I watched this to refresh my memory. Did you guys go back and watch the movie as well? Oh, I think I had to. I mean, this is a notorious show for me. I'm known for going against the grain time and again, and maybe only Spider-Man 2 is a more contentious one in the fact that I was the one out of the three of us that did not give this movie a pass. I ended up going Red Arrow on it. And so I figured, all right, enough time has definitely passed. A lot of people truly love that movie, and I don't remember enough about it to go into this new movie cold, so I did. I absolutely did watch it a couple days before seeing the movie, and I will go ahead and flip the arrow. 
I'm going to say I was dealing with the fact that it didn't live up to my expectations and I wasn't reviewing the movie that I had seen. The movie that I saw, I just equate it to the science geek that decides she wants a boob job and be Miss America. It's not what I wanted for her. But she looked good in the suit. You know, I'll say that. <laughs> Star Trek 2009 is a fantastic vision. And all of my problems with it remain, but they are lesser with the distance of time. I wish it was a smarter movie. I wish it was less eager to please. I wish its pace would slow down. But when I step away and look at it, and maybe it helps that I've seen a whole lot more <laughs> movies and franchises since that time... It's definitely a better movie now. If we had started that retrospective a couple months ago and we're concluding with Into Darkness, this week I would have given a mild recommend to Star Trek 2009. Well, I think some of the irony is going back and listening to that show, you go, this is like Michael Bay's Transformers. I don't watch Michael Bay's Transformers <laughs> until you are forced to watch Michael Bay's Transformers. <laughs> the stone has worn down. Now playing has changed you, Stuart. It's broken me. Yes, it has. <laughs> And I was listening to that, and I love that Stuart said he wondered if I would feel as strongly about Star Trek 2009 a year later, because I declared it the best of the franchise, possibly neck and neck with Khan. And a year later, would I feel the same way? Here we are four years later. I feel the same way. I've come to agree with a lot of your complaints about it, Stuart. It's a movie that needs to calm down and take a breath. Every single character development moment is shouted while running through a hallway. There's never a time when they sit down. It was an overcorrection from Nemesis and all those previous Star Trek films. But this film, I have watched so many times in the past four years. I built a home theater. This is the movie I put on every time somebody comes over and I want to demonstrate the sound, the picture, because it's a gorgeously shot film. It's constant action. It's got awesome sound. And it's just so damn fun. And it's so hard for me every time I demo it to turn it off after George Kirk dies, which is usually about the good length for a demo. But most of the time people are like, can we just watch this movie from beginning to end? And I end up watching this movie. And I did rewatch it the day before seeing Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm also glad to hear you guys both listen to the podcast because I did the same thing. And my feelings on the 2009 movie are pretty much the same as well as the podcast we did four years ago. I really still enjoy this movie very much. I sat back and had a great time revisiting it. And I'm really glad I did that before I watched Into Darkness. I advise people who haven't seen Into Darkness yet, if you're listening to this now, see the 2009 again before you go into this one. Two things remain irritants for me. And there are things that I'm hoping they're going to correct with Into Darkness. I do think that they got the villains wrong. And I use the word plural, villains. Both Spock and Nero are really pissy. The way that they come across, it's like tantrums. It's hard for <laughs> me to see a good foil for the Enterprise being someone who's blinded by rage and irrational, particularly when it's Spock. I just didn't like the way that Kirk and Spock were pitted against each other. It was the design of the movie. I didn't like that. You guys say you can't wait to watch it beginning to end. That movie does stop being enjoyable once Kirk hits the ice planet. Aside from the Nemo cameo, I was done with it by the time that Spock had ejected him. I agree with you that Nero is a really unworthy villain for that movie, but... It doesn't lessen my enjoyment of it any more than how lame Ironmonger was tacked on to the end of Iron Man 1. It still is a great movie, and in fact, it reignited in me 
my Star Trek fandom. After that movie came out, I went out, I started picking up all of the original series, the 60 series on Blu-ray and its original and special editions. Yes, I investigated doing a podcast reviewing all of the episodes and then decided, and eh, now playing's taking enough time as it is. Little did I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've even gone to those theatrical showings of the Star Trek The Next Generations episodes. Just a couple weeks ago, I was in theaters watching Best of Both Worlds, Part 1 and 2. I have had Matchbox starships on my desk at work for four years. It's hard to believe I've had that job for four years, but four years ago with 2009, I put out an entire fleet of starship vehicles that are still there to this day. Well, I hope you went back and saw episodes with Khan and John Harrison. I got some questions about old series. They have not extracted themselves from what was originally done. I thought that last movie, by doing all of that time travel stuff, they had really pushed beyond having to deal with old track, but this is a movie still very rooted in what's been done before, and I think your knowledge and history with the franchise is going to be helpful for me here. You want to give him a plot, Ernie? John Harrison is a Starfleet intelligence officer gone rogue. He starts by blowing up a Starfleet installation in London, and when the head commanders of the fleet are organized to investigate, he ambushes them, killing Admiral Pike, Kirk's mentor. Kirk, who had been very briefly demoted to first officer of the Enterprise, is again made captain. He tracked Harrison to Kronos, the Klingon homeworld, and wants revenge. Kirk asked Starfleet head Admiral Marcus for permission to lead a secret mission to kill Harrison. Marcus does Kirk one better. He thinks a war against the Klingons is inevitable, and to prepare, Marcus has been preparing secret new weapons, including a stealth missile that Kirk can fire from the neutral zone, killing Harrison with the Klingons unaware who fired the shot. Kirk agrees, but Spock warns that it's an illegal act to execute without a trial, and Scotty quits before signing off on missiles he's not allowed to inspect, but Kirk soldiers on. But Spock's warning rings true, and the Enterprise mysteriously has a warp drive failure stranding them in the neutral zone, so rather than fire the missiles, Kirk leads a team to Kronos to capture Harrison. When Kirk reveals there are 72 of the torpedoes, Harrison surrenders and is taken into custody, where he reveals his real name is, if you haven't seen the movie, stop listening now... <laughs> Khan, Nooney, and Singh, the product of the eugenics wars, revived by Marcus to help create more weaponry to wage war on the Klingons. In the missiles is not just a payload, but a frozen member of Khan's crew that Khan wanted free. Now that Kirk knows this, Marcus attacks the Enterprise with a new, advanced, war-ready Dreadnought starship, nearly destroying the Enterprise, but Scotty had stowed aboard the Dreadnought and disables its weaponry. Kirk and Khan team up to infiltrate the Dreadnought and take out Marcus, but Khan goes rogue, killing Marcus and taking the Dreadnought, demanding Spock hand over the 72 missiles or the Enterprise will be destroyed. Spock gives the missiles to Khan, but with the help of Marcus's daughter, Carol, has armed them and taken out all the frozen people inside. The missiles detonate, and both the Dreadnought and the Enterprise are in a free fall towards Earth, with the Enterprise having no power. Kirk goes into the reactor to realign the Technobabble here, exposing him to severe radiation, killing him. Spock, full of rage, pursues Khan, who piloted his crashing ship to crash at Starfleet headquarters, but Spock captures Khan and is ready to kill him, but Uhura stops her lover at the last moment as Dr. McCoy realized Khan's blood could bring Kirk back to life. And a year later, we see Kirk alive and well in command of the repaired Enterprise as he and his crew begin a five-year deep space mission of exploration. Kirk gives his space, the final frontier speech, as credits roll. So Khan is back. 
Yeah, this was a big part of the build-up. I largely did not get involved in the hype to this. I wasn't trying to read every little detail about what they were going to do, but I do remember the things I was hearing for a long time, maybe well over a year, was who was going to be the villain. Was it Khan or was it this John Harrison? I had heard when they first announced the project that they were going to bring Khan back, and then they did a lot of pulling back, it's not Khan, it's not Khan, it's not Khan. So when it did turn out to be Khan, I wasn't all that surprised, and I wasn't all that happy either. I was right in the middle, like, okay, so they use Khan after all. Because they play that little bait-and-switch kind of thing, because they realized they needed to have the reveal in the movie. And I remember when 2009 came out, all the fanboys were saying, well, part two, that's going to be Khan. And Damon Lindelof and J.J. Abrams were like, no, how do you go back to Khan? How do you redo what was done so well? We're going to go in a different direction. That said, didn't they also say this movie was going to be out in 2011? Yes, this took a while. Four years is a very long time for a franchise piece, and I think they would have liked to have had it earlier. What I got the vibe from was they took so long because J.J. wanted to get it right. They spent an incredibly long time looking at old Trek, looking at old enemies, seeing what they could pull from. I think there was talk of finding someone like a Khan, a nemesis from one of the 60s episodes they could pull out. I think that's who this John Harrison is supposed to be. Well, Stuart, I hate to burst your bubble, but John Harrison was never in the original series. There is no John Harrison. Oh, there's no character called John Harrison, like an ensign or something? There was a guy named Harrison who was like the most minor of characters on the bridge in the first season, but his first name was never revealed, and I don't know if that's a coincidence. I mean, Harrison's a pretty common name. I don't see a direct correlation between this John Harrison and anything in the original series. But no, they never went up against a John Harrison. Oh, well, that shows you what I know. I assume that this was a special guest appearance on the status of Ricardo Montalban's. You know, I never have seen any 60s Trek episodes, so I just assumed it was something I didn't know that Trekkies would have been very aware of. You know, it's so funny. I was so not hyped. I had forgotten that I had already seen the first eight minutes of this movie until they were starting. But the first part of this movie that reintroduces the characters here on this red weed planet was at the front of Hobbit. And it had gotten a big reaction then. It told me that they were not taking this in a more subdued direction, that the frenzied action, the Michael Bayification of Star Trek would continue in earnest as we see Kirk and McCoy running. I mean, I think it's important that the first time we see them, they're running as fast as they can. And I do feel like that pace that I bumped up against remains an issue throughout the movie. I think this one actually has a little bit less of that pacing issue. You compared the first one to being on Red Bull. I don't think this one quite as much Red Bull. Maybe it had one instead of a six-pack. But yeah, we do start off in a excessively action-oriented scene that is here to show off as much technical as it is to reintroduce you to this world. This is where the 3D really sank in with those aborigines chucking spears in my face. It looked awesome. I was very distracted by the 3D in this opening scene. Besides the arrows that came from my perspective towards McCoy, which I thought was really cool, and the arrows coming towards the other way, when they were running through the weeds, my eyes couldn't follow. It was too fast with the 3D. The 3D didn't really impact me for the rest of the movie at all, but only in that opening scene I found it very distracting. Yeah, I feel like largely this is the 3D moment. Was the whole movie shot in 3D? It feels like this opener is in 3D, but for the rest of the movie, I'm not really aware of it. Maybe I adjust to it, or maybe 
it wasn't actually the whole movie filmed in this format, but I had a lot of ghosting in the later part of the movie. I mean, it could have been a horror movie. I saw so many ghosts later, <laughs> but it was probably where I was sitting. I was very much at the front of it. I ha- It was a struggle to even get a ticket. It was a hot ticket in town. And so I didn't have a prime location in the theater, but I didn't feel like, by and large, once we get past this opener, which I admit, the arrows are great. I didn't feel like the 3D was useful at all. Agreed. No, you guys are absolutely right. This was another post-conversion 3D job, just like Iron Man 3. And for most of the movie, yeah, the 3D looks pretty flat. But what I do know is some of this movie was shot in IMAX. And I'm wondering if these were the scenes shot in IMAX, because whatever they did, it was above and beyond for most 3D conversions. I thought this was shot in 3D until I did some reading later because of these opening scenes. As for the Aborigines and all of this, I read the prequel comics to this. If you recall, for 2009, I read the Countdown series that bridged Star Trek The Next Generation to the 2009 film. And it was so important to my enjoyment of that movie that I went and read the prequel comics to this. They called it Countdown to Darkness. It was all about Kirk and the Prime Directive and a pre-technological civilization that had been corrupted by technology. And so when this whole thing is at the beginning about the Prime Directive, and Kirk, you can't violate the Prime Directive, you can't let the Aborigines see you, or they'll know there are aliens and all of this, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to have another entire movie about the Prime Directive, like we had with that Next Generation one. It's going to be very cerebral, it's going to be very talky. No, the Prime Directive never really comes up again. The true thing they're setting up here is they're creating a situation in which Kirk has to decide whether to save Spock's life and self-sacrifice. It's a theme of the movie. Spock has decided to go into the volcano and ignite some kind of cold fusion device that's going to turn lava into ice. Is that a violation of Prime Directive? That, to me, seems like it's already interfering. It seems like it is, but I think the big thing is to interfere in their culture, doing something that would make them aware and change the course of their natural growth as a society. Here, what they're trying to do is in secret, so they're just stopping extinction. Now, it seems later on Pike is as pissed that they stopped the volcano as he is that they let these tribal people see the starship. So it appears from this movie that that would also be a violation of the Prime Directive. But playing the logic games, if a civilization has no future, if it's going to be entirely wiped out, is it better to let it go completely extinct than to play God and pull some puppet strings? It seems very hazy to me that you could interfere with a culture that would end and that the Prime Directive would stretch that far. I was having the same problems with you guys about the Prime Directive, but later on when Spock confers with Spock, isn't that a violation of the Prime Directive also? And that scene pissed me off because Spock's like, I've taken a vow to tell you nothing, but let me tell you everything. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I started laughing in the theater, and then I said to myself, wait a second, all this trouble about the Prime Directive in the beginning, this is a direct violation of the Prime Directive because he's possibly changing the course of Spock's new fate. Well, that's not really the Prime Directive so much as it is possibly creating a universe-destroying paradox. Oh, wait, they've already done that. So (laughs) at this point, what does it matter? Okay. Yeah, there's no way that the audience isn't going to be on Spock and Kirk's side here. We would want Enterprise to do whatever it could to protect a culture from being wiped out by a volcano. And yes, if Spock got into a jam and the choice was either let him be consumed by that lava before the thing detonated or 
flying into view so that the tribesmen know that there are giant metal ships that are on their planet, Kirk made the right choice. I mean, obviously, we would not want Spock to have died. I think everyone is on Enterprise's side. It strangely puts us in the mood to disagree with Starfleet Brass. And I think that was something that Roddenberry always rejected. He always wanted us to think that Starfleet was homogenous and forward-thinking, and the enemies never came within. But right from this opener, what it does is set up the fact that people up the chain of command are not necessarily in the right. Well, looking at the original series, there were often cases of individual Starfleet officers, including those who outranked Kirk. I remember a Commodore, specifically, who would go rogue and do things wrong on their own, and Kirk would have to stop. Starfleet, the organization, was good individuals within Starfleet could still be bad, as long as they weren't Enterprise crew, and if they were Enterprise crew, they were corrupted by some alien force. So here, this feels very much like a throwback to those episodes, because what you have is one admiral, Admiral Marcus, whose name reveals the mid-movie plot spoiler... Yes, it does. He has kind of gone rogue. He's doing these secret ops missions without any backing. I think that it holds to the letter of Roddenberry's law, even if it does violate some of the spirit. Well, yes, right from the get-go, by seeing Kirk and Spock do everything they can to protect a primitive culture that was going to be annihilated, and then get demoted for it, makes me think that Starfleet doesn't know what it's doing. It's not espousing the right values. It felt like they were fixing the screw-up they made last time. You mean we made a cadet captain, and something went wrong? Who could have seen that coming? (laughs) Pike actually calls it out that he promoted a cadet. And that was a kind of a major plot point in the movie when they demoted him. Yeah, I didn't feel like at the end of the last movie, Kirk had earned his place in that captain's chair yet. That said, I thought that we were done with this. I didn't think that they were still going to be in school. They're about to get their ship and go on the science mission, but that didn't start with the end of the last movie. Yeah, this is like Quantum of Solace to me, because it felt to me with the James Bond series, Casino Royale, we saw Bond begin. And at the end of that movie, we're like, okay, we've seen it, and now we can start the Bond adventure. And then we get to Quantum of Solace and go, oh, Okay, so the story isn't as done as we thought it is, and this is really part two of it. And I think Trek did the exact same thing here. Yeah, you're exactly right, Arnie. It's very much the same kind of game. Here, they kind of used it as a plot point to try to further what the agenda of the movie was, which I thought worked somewhat, even though I didn't really care for they were doing it. Whereas in the Quantum of Solace, they kind of felt like he was kind of dicking us around a little bit. Isn't it ridiculous, though, that they take him from cadet to captain? And then in this movie, Captain Cadet, first officer, God only knows what his rank is. They call him commander at a point once. And then five minutes later... (laughs) He's captain again. And poor Pike. Pike is here just to be abused. Last movie, he's captain of the Enterprise. He's captured by Nero, tortured, ends up in a wheelchair. And I figure that's permanent because Pike in the original series was a vegetable who could barely move and communicate in a wheelchair. But here he's limping around with a cane and he's captain again just to be killed at this time. Wait a minute, I thought this was the original captain of the Enterprise. I thought there was that original pilot that had someone not Shatner, and it was Pike. Right, but... He was in a wheelchair? The original pilot was never aired, and so what they did was they re-spliced that episode and had Captain Pike be virtually vegetative in a wheelchair put on trial for the things, and it was a clip show, basically. Ah, 
So yeah, the big thing about Captain Pike is he was injured, horribly burned, couldn't move, completely paralyzed, and could only communicate by flashing a light on a wheelchair once for yes, twice for no. It's a really good episode, by the way. <laughs> I really like that one. But yeah, here they are in the doghouse again, and it sort of pits Kirk and Spock against each other, a relationship that they've spent more time in than liking each other. That was a big problem for me last time. I'm worried at the beginning here that I'm going to see more and more squabbles between Spock and Kirk about who's in control and who does right and pointy and all of this name calling. I didn't like that he used the expression, you threw me under the bus. I'm like, wow, that survived all these years, that wonderful expression. <laughs> See, I thought in the last movie that the Kirk-Spock friendship was never earned. And it even ends with Spock telling Spock, hey, you guys are going to be good friends. And I could have come in and done all this for you, but you guys needed to see you could rely on each other and form that friendship. I didn't feel like it was made. And perhaps I'm tinged by the fact that I did read some of those intermediate comic books where they're still trying to feel each other out. But I never felt like they had the camaraderie. It would feel weird to me if Star Trek Into Darkness had them old chums like Wrath of Khan did. If it was just instant, we're now best friends. I kind of appreciated that this is the movie that forges the friendship. Last one, they meet. This one, they fall in love. Yes. <laughs> there is a little bit of that, platonically. But uh, yes, I agree. It is in all of these dynamics. And everyone has their moment. Every crew member is given a little something to do. But ultimately, this is a movie about Kirk and Spock, as it should be. I guess I just wish I liked this Spock better. I felt it last time, and I didn't quite say it. Now I'm 100% sure. I don't like Quinto in this role. I just don't like the way that he plays Spock. And you cited it last time as him losing the sense of humor that Nimoy brought. That is exactly what I need. That droll wit. Even if he's not meaning to tell a joke, I always smiled when Spock came on. And when I see this Spock, oh boy, drama. You don't think he's doing that here when Pike's like, are you giving me attitude? And he goes, I have multiple attitudes to which are you referring? I thought they were actually fixing what they did wrong in the last one by trying to give him those lines. I liked him better in this one than the first. I'm with Stuart on this one. I find the sense of humor for that example you cited, Arnie, was funny, but it was missing that slyness to it. It was too in your face as opposed to dry. And while we should always give a guy a chance to make the character his own, the problem he has also because they brought Nimoy back in this one to remind us, and in that small exchange Nimoy's here, he's emotional without being too emotional that Quinto can't seem to nail. And you know exactly what Quinto is feeling all the time because not only his face tells you, but his tone of voice and the way he punches words, it kind of oversells instead of being more Vulcanish. He just seems pissy to me. He always seems like he's just got something up his crawl. It does not seem like he's an unemotional, in charge of his feelings being. It feels like he knows what the right thing is to do and is constantly burdened by the fact that he's saddled with someone who goes on impulse and not reason. I give Pine a pass because I never was a Shatner fan, and I thought Shatner was a ham, and even though that kind of worked for the dynamic they had, Pine makes a better captain now. And I appreciate that they've gone with this young cast. It suits the very action-y quality of this series. My real holdup with this entire cast is Quinto. I just don't like him. It's funny because back when the first one came out, I was having a little bit trouble going in, separating Quinto from his role as Siler on Heroes. Well, Heroes was canceled shortly thereafter. I haven't seen Quinto as anything. <laughs> I don't know even if he's worked since Star Trek. I haven't looked him up on IMDb. He's not 
come on my radar. So to me, he is new Spock and he's working for me. I like that he's still dealing with the emotions of his entire planet dying and he's kind of trying to close off his emotions more because of those billions of deaths. Yes, I kind of like that. If he is a more emotional Spock and giving into more of his human side, it is because his planet blew up and his mom died. And they do have that moment in the movie to remind us of that. And I did accept that to a point, but I do feel he went too far with it. I also, Arnie, I saw him in Margin Call, which I actually kind of liked him in. That's the only role I've seen him in since the last Star Trek movie. He was in the second season of American Horror Story, playing a killer. So, you know, he's still creepy, (laughs) still got that anger going on. Yeah, I see him as someone that is just boiling underneath. And I liked Nimoy's take on it. I remain sold on old generation Trek when it comes to Spock. For the rest of the crew, you say everyone gets their moment. They do, but it is far more brief. It felt last time like they were really trying to juggle and everyone would have their moment. Here, everyone gets their screen time, but just like old Trek, out of everyone, I think Sulu gets the shaft. Yep, this time Sulu did get the shaft of everybody else. Yeah, he gets to sit in the commander's seat. That was the bone that they threw at Takai in part six. And they give him a moment where he gets to tell off Harrison in a transmission. We don't see Harrison's face. We don't see how it plays. It plays off McCoy, actually. But yeah, Sulu has always been one of my favorites. And I don't feel like this is a Sulu movie for sure. And I'm not any more won over by what John Cho is doing here than what he did last time. For me, the standout was Zoe Saldana. She had those two or three scenes, and every single one I thought she nailed perfectly. I really, really like what she was doing in this movie, and talk about doing a lot with a little. That's exhibit number one. I thought she was great. I had forgotten that she and Spock had a thing, but she makes that believable. I think that that would be a problem for me because I don't like what Quinto's doing, but I believe that relationship because I like her frustration. I guess it mirrors my own, and (laughs) Yes. She's good. She's absolutely good. I wish she had a few more scenes, but compared to what Nichelle Nichols got to do in the last one, she is definitely, if not a star, she's on the posters. They're definitely featuring her. They're thinking about her a lot more than they are Chekhov. Absolutely true. She's the one who I feel gets her moment. The way Sulu got his sword fight last time here, she actually gets two of them. She gets to go down and talk to the Klingons without books surrounding her everywhere and looking things up with Scotty. She gets to talk tough to some Klingons. You can tell they realize they have a star here, they need to feature her, but she doesn't fit in this story. So it does feel a little shoehorned in that she does that. And at the very end, yeah, she's the one who helps take out Khan. Very strange for Uhura when, again, yeah, Chekhov has been running around engineering, not really accomplishing much, and Sulu sat in the captain's chair, not really accomplishing much, and Scotty's not even on the Enterprise this time. They mirror what they did the last movie. I had forgotten that Scotty wasn't introduced until the halfway mark, and they make him go away here. Once we get into this plot, he is the one with moral principles, and... Because he has them, he actually resigns and disappears for half the movie again. (laughs) He'll come back, and it's fun when he does. But yeah, they know Peg is a scene stealer, and they're cautious, rightfully so, about how much to use him in a full movie. He works in little amounts. You would hate to see a whole Trek movie in which he was in it from start to finish, because I think you would pay more attention to him than you would Kirk. I don't think I'd hate that. I would love a Scotty Keenser movie. Keenser's that little friend he has around <laughs> with him. Love that little dude. I'm so glad he's back. Yeah, he seems like a refugee of Star Wars. When they're in the bar later, I'm like, is this the cantina? I mean, we do know that J.J. Abrams' next movie is not Star Trek Three, but in fact, 
Star Wars 7, I see that sensibility here. And this character feels like he could do a crossover. Oh, yeah. Stuart, I hadn't heard that. Is that true? <laughs> All right. So the Simon Pegg stuff for me was a lot of fun. And I loved how they used him here. Stuart, you're dead on on this. Honestly, Arnie, I think a 20 minute or a 30 minute short with those two would be great. An hour and a half of that would be like having Cousin Eddie have his own movie from the vacation movies. It would just get too old too quick. I just picture it as Shaun of the Dead in space or Hot Fuzz. It would be a sci-fi action film that the main character isn't taking very seriously. They'd have to give him a new crew. He fits into this ensemble very strangely because he demands so much attention and because the original Scotty wasn't. James Doohan knew his place, if you know what I mean. He never tried to overshadow Shatner, as <laughs> if you could. But here, I think Scotty is always on that precipice of grabbing your movie and making it exactly that, Arnie. Making it his movie. And I think while that might be enjoyable, it wouldn't be right. And I think that's because he is a star. Simon Pegg is a star of this entire cast. The only ones I've seen since Last Trek and now are Zoe Saldana and Simon Pegg. I guess I've seen Carl Urban. I just, he's such a good actor, he just disappears into whatever role he's in, and I never think of him as Carl Urban. And I, again, liked what Carl Urban was doing with Bones. I thought they used him as comic relief very well here. He had a little bit to do here and there. And again, he's channeling DeForest Kelly, but he's still making it his own. I liked him a lot. Yeah, he works in very similar ways, and I agree with everything you just said. I feel like maybe he gets forgotten. I forget about that he's in the movie until the very end. He's the one that actually solves everything, but... I was worried coming into this, wondering how much of a role Bones could play, because on the original series and all of the series, there's always a mysterious disease. The doctors get their episodes where they're doing science... And I was curious what they could do with Bones here. And I actually think they went back to the well a little too much with him. With the damn it, Jim, and all of the various phrases. I loved it in the first one, but here I wish he had made it more his own. That said, I think Carl Urban is the single actor now who could stand there with William Shatner and <laughs> Leonard Nimoy and just be Bones. DeForest Kelly is no longer with us. Carl Urban can just be DeForest Kelly. I didn't laugh as hard at the jokes this time around, and I think it's the writer's fault for leaning a little too heavily on those old lines. But yeah, he's very good in this, and I hope if they do a third one that he gets to do a little bit more. Yeah, I think they'll need to think about some of these people that they haven't used, or at least I hope they do. They never did in the original six films. No, yeah, I, 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 and I've always been partial to those ones in the background. I always wanted to know more than I did, and they fixed some of them, but others remain an enigma to solve later or not. But let's face it, we've seen all these people before. They're all pretty much doing what they've done before. The new thing being injected here is the villain, and this was the one thing about Star Trek Into Darkness that did get me hyped. I am a huge fan of BBC's Sherlock, and Benedict Cumberbatch is awesome in that. I haven't seen the Robert Downey Jr. version, and I don't want to, because this guy, to me, is Sherlock Holmes. He is a fantastic character actor, and I really wanted to see him play villain. I'm a fan of that show, too, and we've talked about this before. When you have movies like comic book movies or sci-fi movies, you need a really strong actor to put across some stuff that when a weaker actor does it, it comes off terribly. So when you cast someone like Benedict Cumberbatch, you know you're going to get something really, really strong because this man is really impressive. I saw him in War Horse as well in a really small part, and I was hoping for more. Even that small little role, he gave so much. Arnie, if you haven't seen Sherlock yet, go to Netflix and watch it. It's fantastic. I'm a little busy with Superman movies right now. I'll put that on my <laughs> hiatus list. <laughs> 
But yeah, I didn't know this actor from anything. I had heard rumors coming in that he might be Khan. I had followed those rumors as a Trek fan, wondering if he was. Unfortunately, IMDb did spoil it for me coming in. I knew he was Khan. So my whole question is, can you be Ricardo Montalban? And of anyone taking a role and making it their own, it's this. This guy is not trying to be Ricardo Montalban. He is a totally different con than we've seen before. But I do like this guy's physicality, his menace, his facial expressions, his piercing eyes. He has everything I want in a villain. Yeah, he is a strange-looking fellow. I mean, sometimes you look at him, you might think he's a leading man quality, but mostly he's just tall, gangly, and strange. And it is that stare. It is a stare to make anyone wilt. And that voice. I mean, truly, the best British voice I've heard since Jeremy Irons. Close your eyes, and they sound identical. It's also that jaw, too. Sometimes I thought he looked like a vampire behind the glass. I agree, Arnie. I think when you have a role like Khan, when it's an iconic role in Star Trek, especially like us who've seen the movies, I think he did a nice take on it, and I didn't mind at all that he was Khan. I thought he embodied it well enough. And the character is genetically blah, 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 the same kind of stuff, right? But I like that if they're going to bring him back, bring this kind of actor to it, kind of gives me hope with Michael Shannon in Zod. He has the same kind of problem going into Man of Steel later this summer. Yeah, I do wish that Cumberbatch had put on a plastic chest. But other than that... (laughs) Hey, that was all Montalban. That was... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they say. But yeah, I'm glad they didn't go the McCoy route. I'm glad they're not having a Latin actor purposely emulate Ricardo Montalban, give us an impersonation rather than a new characterization. I think that's the way to go, particularly since they're trying to disguise it. For half this movie, he's just the tall, scary dude in the background. He has a a really powerful introduction. We have this whole sort of interlude where a couple is going to see their sick daughter at the hospital and we see flying cars. We're wondering what to pay attention to. There's no dialogue at all. It's just music and we're wondering how does this integrate with anything? He has the first line there. I can save her. And you know, as soon as we hear that, he becomes the focal point. These people ultimately become pawns in his game. He gives them blood in exchange for this Starfleet commander taking a ring and making it explode in a high-tech facility. I love this opening. I thought it was beautiful how they didn't use any dialogue. I liked the music underneath it, actually. I liked the actors in it, and I love the meaning behind it. Again, I'm going to go to this well because it's who I am. As a father, to watch this scene, it's heartbreaking. It was very meaningful to me, and I thought they played it very, very well. And it also set up the menace of this man who was willing to exploit anything to get what he wants. It was a very well-written and well-put-across scene and set up the movie beautifully. I liked it. It gave us Chekhov's blood vial, and I don't mean that as in Pavel Chekhov, but as in Chekhov's gun. But I thought when we're seeing the scene with a guy mourning his daughter, that it would actually be more of this. That seems all very irrelevant to the overall plot. The thing that Khan needed to do was get a building to blow up, get a Starfleet officer to be desperate enough to commit suicide in a terrorist bombing. The fact that it was to save the life of his daughter, irrelevant, never brought up again. No, it's everything. It's the perspective of this movie. The movie wants this known. When we see that explosion go off, it is through the window with the child's photo and close-up. The perspective we are to take from this is that terrorists aren't evil people defined by race or religion or geographical location. Terrorists are people in dire circumstances that have to 
make a choice based usually on family. It's a contentious way to begin discussing the dialogue of political climate and what makes a terrorist, which is ultimately where Trek is heading. The darkness that the title refers to is the fact that it's going to take on 9-11. Interesting topic for Star Trek to hit, especially 12 years later. Well, can I say I am a little tired of this? I really like subtext, and I really like relevancy. I like it when stories aren't just about, oh, some faraway sci-fi world, but one that speaks to our own world. But yeah, it has been 12 years since this has happened, and everyone from Christopher Nolan's Batman to George Romero's Zombies to freaking Texas Chainsaw Massacre has had a take (laughs) on this tragedy. And I can honestly say, as bold as they want to make this, I'm a little tired of these themes. I was a little disappointed that it was going to be about this. I'm right there with you. Sometimes I feel like we should rename the podcast to Now Playing Post 9-11, because we talk about it so damn often. (laughs) And yes, it is perhaps the biggest event that will occur in my lifetime. It is a generation-shaping event, but it has been 12 years, and so having it filtered so often, having deconstructed it so often, it becomes a little bit watered down. And while I was happy to see Star Trek actually becoming about something again instead of about explosions... This felt safe. It felt done. Yes, it really felt like if you were going to do this, this should have been the one four years ago. Now everyone and their brother has had their say about 9-11, and I'm just wondering, are they going to be able to say anything different? Is it really a eye-opening perspective to think, oh, terrorists are people that have daughters that are dying and have to join suicide missions to protect their village and their family? Again, having spent well over a decade, now having movies about how we caught Bin Laden, already out. I feel like the button's on this. It was sewn up, it was done, and this is not contemporary anymore. I'm not saying it's not relevant. Obviously, 9-11 will shape everything our culture does forever, but in this day and age, this story is about five years too late. I actually enjoyed the way they did it, though. For this villain, for this movie, I think they found a way to make it work for now. What you guys are saying about a been there, done there feeling, I get that later in the movie. But here up top, I like the way it set up Cumberbatch. It's a nice way to set him up. And having a terrorist bombing done by one person has very much a new basis in reality with the Boston Marathon. We talked about that a bit with Iron Man 3 as well. Terrorism is alive and well. Domestic terrorism is a growing threat. It it still has its place, but looking at the larger themes of military response to 9-11. In this movie, Nero coming back and killing George Kirk and all those ships in the beginning is their 9-11. And 25, 28, 29 years later, they're still dealing with it and still trying to now become what Starfleet never really has been, except for in Deep Space Nine, a military organization ready to go to war. Yeah, it's important to keep the perspective that this explosion that happens, it's only 42 people that are dead. This is obviously a tragedy, and 42 people is an incredible loss. It is not the same loss. And it is people that were working on a high-tech organization, we will find out that Starfleet is doing, quote-unquote, bad things. It is doing military endeavors. And in this perspective of this movie, that is a negative thing. It's warmongering. Now, I ask, do you guys feel like Starfleet is the bad guy here? 
I definitely feel like Admiral Marcus is the bad guy, and he is the head of Starfleet, played by RoboCop Peter Weller. He will never not be RoboCop to me. And <laughs> as soon as I see him, he also carries with him a bit of an evil menace where I never trust Peter Weller in any film. It's those eyes, I'm telling you. I was a little disappointed it wasn't Tyler Perry. Didn't he have this part last movie? <laughs> <laughs> Terror in a dress, just not quite the same. No. I think Peter Weller, to see him in this movie, was odd to me as well. I always get this negative tinge, but if you think about all the movies he's done, doesn't he typically play the hero like Buckaroo Banzai and Screamers? <laughs> yeah, he is a hero, but he's never heroic, if that makes sense. He's always the main character. I'll put it that way. He projects to me a sort of intelligence and brooding that's different from, like, an action star or someone that's going to save the day. But you're right. Typically, he doesn't play villains, so we shouldn't presume he's a villain by seeing him here. But I don't know if this movie's willing to go so far as to say all of Starfleet is to blame, because everything he's doing, he's doing in secret. This installation that's blown up at the beginning, all of Starfleet, with the exception of this guy and a few intelligence operatives, think it's just an archives. It's a library. But it turns out it's where his secret research is going on. And he has a secret facility in Jupiter that's making a warship. Nobody knows about this. So I don't think that they piss on Roddenberry's homogenized, everything's hunky-dory view of the future, because they make it seem like this one man's secret vendetta. Didn't we talk about that during Insurrection also, that the Starfleet commander was acting on his own and not doing it for Starfleet, or was he doing it for Starfleet also? Do you remember that? We talked about it, but, I mean, it was very unclear how much was for Starfleet on that one. Exactly. So for here, you're just saying it's just this one guy, not Starfleet as a whole. But unfortunately, Arnie, he runs Starfleet, right? Yeah. I don't get the sense that he's a rogue guy that's a special guest for this episode. My impression is, oh, this is Bush or this is Cheney. This is somebody that's leading Starfleet. He's at the head of the table. They bring in all the brass. The top guys are there when Khan flies in to kill them all. And he's the one everyone's paying attention to. He's at least the last one standing and becomes the guy that everyone follows after that scene. No, they say he's the head of Starfleet. Right. That means, in my estimation, that Starfleet is corrupt, that it, it has been hijacked itself. It's a difference in time. I was just hearing the other day about in the 60s, when that Star Trek show was on, 70% of the American population believed in their government. And I'm not talking about elected leaders. I'm talking about believed that government worked. And now that number is around 17, 20%. I think it would be very hard in this day and age to project a idea of a universe-reaching conglomeration and not feel like it has the power to be bureaucratic and warmongering and negative. I think that's just our mentality now, no matter who is in the, the lead, whether you're Obama supporter or Bush, at the end of the day, most people don't feel like government functions in a way that is helpful. But several things bug me about Admiral Marcus. First of all, the name. Did we need the Marcus family in this film? Carol Marcus, obviously a big part of Star Trek II, Kirk's old girlfriend, mother of Kirk's son. This is a movie with Khan, but the name Marcus reveals way too much. To a Trekkie, I had totally forgotten this. You guys are pointing this out as exposing, and you're right, it totally is. I didn't go back and watch Khan. I kind of wish I had now, and maybe I still will. 
But I had forgotten this name, Arnie, so it didn't spoil anything for me. It spoiled it for me as soon as I heard Marcus, and then her name was Carol. I put it together really quick, Stuart. I actually tried to remain spoiler-free for this one, but it was plastered all over IMDb. Alice Eve is Carol Marcus. And so when she comes on and gives a fake name, I'm like, yeah, I know who you are immediately. Thank you, IMDb headlines. I wondered why they brought this blonde in here, because it's the new crew member. She should be important, but she's a superfluous science officer. Spock's the science guy, and he even calls her out on this. But I just thought that they needed somebody to play off for Kirk, that with Spock clearly having Ahura's attention fully now, that Kirk needed a woman. And so they give us this surfer girl. I thought they were going to have her be in love with Khan. I thought they were going to do that. In the original episode, Space Seed with Khan... A female member of the crew of the Enterprise falls in love with Khan and betrays the Enterprise. If they didn't make Carol Marcus have that turn, which is what I was suspecting they'd do, going back to that original episode, she's pointless in this film. Kirk doesn't even better, and why would he? He's got a three-way going on with two cat women. <laughs> yeah, I had the same exact thought, Arnie, and I agree with you. Clearly, Carol Marcus knew what her father was up to, and that's why she's there, but that's kind of weak. If they went with the Khan connection, it would have been completely predictable, but at least it would have made sense for her to be on the Enterprise. I thought she was limited to this movie. I would say this much. I didn't know whether she was in it with Khan. I thought she might be a villain. I thought that she would have a third act reveal that would make her utilitarian in some way. But she's a new crew member. At the end of this movie, she's on the bridge with them. How do you feel about the idea that future treks are going to inject entirely new characters? I don't think they are. Don't you remember the whale lady from Star Trek Four, or even Savick? I mean, eventually they all just disappear. She did nothing in this movie, and I expect her to do even less in the next one, as in not show up on set. Really? <laughs> I, I predict she definitely will be in it, and I predict they'll develop this relationship with Kirk. He has a flirtation. You know, when he sees her, he gets the wah-wah-wah. But beyond that, it really isn't a movie about her and them at all. I think they'll fix that in the next one. If they do, it's, again, at the expense of poor, poor Sulu. <laughs> I think if they bring Carol Marcus in the next movie, she's going to be pregnant with David or just had birth, given birth to David. Why else would they have her? She's a broodmare. Is that what you're saying? I disagree with both of you. I think that she's here to stay. I think that they have introduced a character that will continue on and maybe even replace other people on the bridge when their contracts expire and they want to go do other things. Maybe. I mean, the door is open for it, but... Let me put it this way. If they announce the cast of Trek 3 and Alice Eve isn't on it, I'm not going to sit around going, well, where is she? No, I don't have a moment where I bond with her at all. I, all the crew gets one kind of heroic moment. She's kind of always in the background. What was her heroic moment in this? She arms the bombs. She is the expert on the bombs. Why is she an expert on the bombs? I don't know. She is the daughter of Admiral Marcus, who did all this research, but I get the impression that he's trying to hide it from her, not that she was working for her father as the chief science officer researching all these war machines. Yeah, that was all very nebulous to me. I wasn't sure who she was in cahoots with. I don't think she was in cahoots with anyone. She didn't know Khan, and she didn't know what her father was doing. And every time she tried to stymie one of them, she really wasn't very effective at it. Well, she definitely had some inkling of what her father was doing, because she came with the missiles. She knew knew there was something with those missiles. Oh, that wasn't just happenstance? I just assumed she was just like, I want to be in a big movie and get a paycheck. I got the impression she knew something was up with the missiles. And again, she and Khan shared a moment. is that she was in the laboratory working on this stuff at some point. But it's all projection because we're not told that. 
in the movie. She is there just to explain the tech. They gave her that one scene with bones on the planet, right? right. With the missiles, and that's it. And then to have her come back later on to be the reason the Enterprises that get blown up in that moment, she really wasn't needed in this movie. No. I think that if there was a reason to have her, it is both as, yeah, sex appeal and because, as you guys have pointed out, those that are more tied into what Trek has already gone before will have their ears perk up. Certain expectations are built when you introduce that. I'll relay it to a series I know much better, Prometheus. You know, when we see certain iconic things happen, we think we know where it's going, we make assumptions, and then we're proven wrong. I think this movie is entirely predicated on this. The Lindelof sort of Prometheization of Alien is very much in evidence here with the Khan storyline. Let me ask, though, bringing back Khan, having it be Khan, does this movie rely too much on the wrath of Khan? Yes. You said you didn't see it again, Stuart, and I wonder if I couldn't quote almost every line of Wrath of Khan, if I would enjoy Star Trek Into Darkness as much as I did. Would this movie play for a generation who doesn't want to see the old farts in space? The answer is yes. There is way too much leaning on what has been done before, and to a point that is detrimental. I am actually angered about it by the end of the movie, and how they've almost turned moments into jokes. It's almost like camp. I completely agree with Stuart. I was angry at that point later in the movie. Yeah. At the beginning, we still don't know it's Khan. It should be said. We think it's John Harrison. They're going to Klingon. We get some more battles, some very Star Wars battles. I had a out-of-body experience where I thought it was the Millennium Falcon flying around through that little towers or whatever, <laughs> squeezing the tight fit. Yeah, they did that exact same maneuver in Empire Strikes Back. I'm disappointed they didn't do more with the Klingons. You start off with this admiral talking about how war with the Klingons is inevitable. I really thought for sure that the climax of this movie would have the stakes so high as the Klingons are invading the Federation. But they pull back from that. This is our only Klingon moment. And they've kind of redone the Klingons for this new galaxy. I couldn't tell, but did that Klingon have piercings on every head ridge? It looked that way. It sure did. But I thought they looked cool. Yeah, I like them. Really cool. I like the helmets and everything. It was really neat. Yeah, I guess it was important to have them. They should have had them more. You're right. The stakes of the second half of the movie are wrong. It should really be about heading closer and closer to war because of a contrived situation. But the Klingons are dropped. As soon as they get Khan, he really surrenders. He doesn't even get captured. But as soon as he's helped them kill all these Klingons, I forget about him. Because of all the stuff we talked about in Skyfall, you guys talked about it, Dark Knight, the Avengers, did you guys again think at first that he's trying to get captured on purpose? Because talk about something that's been used to death. I thought he surrendered and got captured as part of his big plan. Yeah, what does Khan want at this point? He just wants his crew. I'm trying to understand the motivations of him in general. We're wondering why he set off the bomb. He's been this mysterious figure. He's hiding out on the other side where he presumes Starfleet can't get him. He's wrong. They break protocol and show up. He helps them kill those Klingons and willingly submits to them, not because he's going to screw up Starfleet. I guess he's just holding out to get his crew. Yeah, what is his motivation? I hate to ask that question, but he starts off blowing up Starfleet. 
he's pissed off because he was used to make weapons and they're holding his crew as leverage is his whole motivation to free his crew. Eventually, if you look at it on a long enough timeline, his motivation is to become the ruler of all humanity and the leader of the Federation because he's a megalomaniac. But in the short term, why is he blowing shit up? Yeah, it's a real problem with this. They don't give him a Genesis device in this movie. For all of the con borrowing that they do, they never tell me what Khan would be doing if he didn't have a beef with Peter Weller. And that is a mistake. I liked having that cleanness of a megalomaniac wants a device that can create and destroy worlds. And here, yeah, we don't even get to meet that crew. I mean, is someone hot on there? Is like his girlfriend there? Like what is so special? I just think of egotists being about all themselves. And why would he care about the 72 other people that much that he would allow himself to be captured and go through all of the complications of the second half of the movie? Well, Stuart, in the original Khan movie, Khan's judgment and the big goal was put aside a little bit to get revenge on Kirk, right? So mm-hmm. perhaps here they're replacing that Kirk revenge with the Peter Weller revenge. You might be right. I agree with that somewhat. I think that what they're really trying to do is drive home the themes of self-sacrifice for your crew and your family. Spock at the beginning is going to sacrifice himself for the Aborigines. Later in the film, Kirk has to make a choice to take responsibility and sacrifice himself for the lives of his crew members. Here, Khan is sacrificing himself, allowing himself to be taken into custody for the sake of his crew. We don't know why Khan likes his crew, but that's the theme of this movie is the responsibility of leadership and crew as family. And so we're getting it exemplified here. Well said, Arnie. Well said. I don't know, though, what his beef is with Peter Weller. (laughs) Peter Weller was holding his people captive to get what he wants out of Khan. The knowledge and... Right. It's all done in monologue is really the problem. Here is somewhere where I really wanted a flashback. And I think Cumberbatch is a great actor. I think he's great here, but I needed more than him going off with blah, blah, blah about what his problem was with Weller. I needed to see it because, yeah, it's hard to visualize because I have your 72 friends on ice. You're going to make these ships for me. And by the way, these ships don't look very different from the Enterprise itself. They couldn't develop it without Khan. This truly is technology beyond Starfleet. (laughs) Is it me or did you expect it to be called the Excelsior? Or am I just into too deep of Star Trek geek mode? You, but... but, uh... (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I don't get his entire reason for going terrorist other than he doesn't like his people being captured. And I can't tell if he's a freedom fighter who wants to expose Weller. Yes. But in the end, it comes down to he wants his people, and then he's going to take this super ship that he designed and use it to take over the Federation. Right. But you're right. By humanizing him, they've done something that just makes it less fun. Because they want to keep this perspective that terrorists are made, they're not born, and that Khan is not a bad guy. He is a man that was was forced to do this, they've really cluttered the mix here. The motivations are as garbled as that time-traveling storyline and Nero last time. There are real script problems in the second half of this movie. And if they wanted to make a terrorists are made type of storyline, I think they should have gone one step further and had it be a Osama bin Laden who is working with our government against the Klingons, perhaps, at some point. The problem is you choose to make him Khan. He, I think he's Khan in name only, but by making him Khan, he has to be discovered having been asleep for hundreds of years. 
if you made it someone who was in the neutral zone, who worked with the Federation fighting off a Klingon invasion and then ends up turning on Starfleet after he's been burned, that would have a lot more real world parallels, a lot more resonance. Yeah. But by having it be Khan, I just can't get Ricardo Montalban in the 60s and the 80s out of my head. I thought they made a separation enough between Montalban and what Cumberbatch was doing characterization-wise and the way he looked and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, I knew the character from the other movie. I've seen other movies so many times, but I didn't have that same problem you had here. I didn't have a problem bumping up with Montalban, who I thought was great, campy fun, because of the way it's played. The darkness of this movie is Cumberbatch, and he just doesn't go for what Ricardo went for. And so I wasn't really thinking about him. They could keep calling him whatever they want. At the end of the day, to me, he's just Cumberbatch. He's not Khan. Exactly. (laughs) That's the thing, is he's not Khan, so why go there? I was actually really watching. I know I want a good story over continuity, but I'm like, did they go back in time even further? Why is he not a sleep why do we not see him wake up the way we did in the original trek they throw it away with a line that i guess marcus is so desperate for weapons that he's just scouring space in case somebody has hid some around prometheus style and they run across the botany bay yeah prometheus you know i brought it up before you said it now it's answering the wrong questions and creating new complications that cloud my entertainment of what I'm being given. Khan is messy here. I don't feel like at any point he is really well utilized in the way that I would need a Khan to be in this story. That they want to rewrite him so much is a problem for me. But I do like the iffiness of it at the beginning. I love the joke. Maybe my favorite laugh of the movie is Kirk saying, well, maybe the enemy of my enemy is my friend and Spock debunking it being like, the guy that said that actually was decapitated, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good line. And there is some good action. I actually really love the scene where Khan and Kirk team up together to infiltrate the Dreadnought and they're flying through space. I think that's really well done. It's a little bit Tron to me, both in terms of the outfits they're wearing and the style, but it's good action. Yeah, I like that scene too. I got Revenge of the Sith off of that scene a little bit too, Arnie. I like the flying. I like them working together. I like the acting. I like the cracking of the thing. A lot of the beats were right. I actually thought it was really well edited as well. The whole thing with Scotty on buying time. The whole scene was a really nice action set piece. I felt it worked much better than, say, the opening one, that while it was exciting to watch them run and the spaceship come out of the water, here, maybe because it was deep in the plot, it actually worked so much better. I was so invested. Even though I know those two men were going to survive, I didn't care because I was still there with the cracking of the glass. It really got me into what was going on. I can't help feeling that there's something impersonal about the way that Abrams films action scenes. I never get excited about them. They're pitched at a pace that is too fast for me. And I said it last movie, and I feel that now. I feel it's really impersonal. I feel like, time to do more action, time to do more action, time to do more action. I just wanted to linger more so that when action comes, I can feel it. I can feel invested. I feel like this was a blatant recreation of that scene from the last time where they parachuted down on top of that thing that was drilling the hole. Well, they even reference it. Kirk right. says he's did it before. <laughs> right, yeah, the, blatantly. Blatantly, they're calling it out. Both of those scenes are wonderful visually. I'm not in the moment, and I can't tell you why other than I just don't sync up into this action the way that it's presented, the way that Abrams builds it. It just doesn't feel right to me, and it definitely doesn't feel track. I thought it was exciting. I don't have that problem getting into Abrams' action. I like Abrams' stuff by and large, what he did with the later Mission Impossibles, what he did with the first Star Trek. 
So to me, it works. And here it's working for me. It does feel like there's a little too much, but it's not as bad as the first one. There are those quiet moments when they're in the prison cell. There are quiet moments with Scotty in a bar. There's quiet moments with Kirk in a bar, again, with Pike on this one. So I think this movie is less frantic than the first one, and I think that's to its credit in many ways. They could keep working at it. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Keep going down. I'm really excited to think about the fact that if Abrams does not come back for the next one, it doesn't look like his schedule will allow it, I'm really encouraged that next time it will be someone else's aesthetic and vision. And it actually might help the series, you know? It helps Mission Impossible very much. And the reason they have to do this weird space skydive thing is because Marcus shows up, concocts a line that Kirk went rogue, even though Marcus gave the order to do so, and wants to destroy the Enterprise, and... I thought for sure we were losing another Enterprise. It seems like they like to blow up Enterprises in these movies. And this ship takes a frickin' beating. (laughs) Yeah, my question is, did he engineer the breakdown? Chekhov is in the engine room, and he's like, I take full responsibility when they break down on the Klingon side of the universe. But my sense is that he engineered this from long ago, that it was always in the scheme. Kirk would go kill Khan, and then Kirk would die out here and start the war. Yeah, I think the missiles weren't even stealth. I think that they had him break down there and tell him to fire on Kronos to start a war. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they actually called it out, too. Kirk's like, I don't think you're responsible for this. And once they reinstated Kirk back to captain after demoting him, the first officer that we all think probably should have happened, right? The fact that he went right back up there again and Weller was so willing to do it and put Spock on there as well. It seemed to me that, again, it tipped its hand there that he was being set up completely. This impulsive officer, you kill two birds with one stone. You get rid of this loose cannon, Kirk, and you start the war you want. When the engines failed and they started calling it out, yeah, it completely thought that Weller was the reason it failed. Yeah, I underline this because it really then, to me, tells me he's the villain of this movie. You say what you will about Khan, Khan is not the major foe, and that's what's so weird about the second half of this movie. Yeah, completely agree, because he has the big plot. That's why I thought this thing was really twisting it. When Kirk and Connor working together to stop Marcus, I'm like, wow, you're really screwing with my expectations here. And I can kind of like that. I read the Ultimate Marvel Comics universe that does the same thing. We're going to tell the same stories we told before, but we're going to tweak it and twist it. So if you know it before, Khan was the ultimate enemy. Now they're frenemies. And going with that... That's why I thought this movie had to end with a Klingon invasion eminent. But no, Khan crushes Marcus's head and boom, our true villain, the one who has the most menace, the one who carries the most danger, is gone. And it makes even no sense why Khan would play into Marcus's warmongering by hiding out in the one place that Marcus wants to attack. It's all very lazy. It's bad. I'll use that, the B word. It's bad. It's bad that all of a sudden Khan is decided, ha ha ha, I'm going to be evil now that I have my crew. I mean, we had that premonition where we talked about the Nimoy scene. I liked it. I mean, maybe it isn't protocol, but it was really nice to see Nimoy. And I did not expect it this time. I thought we were done with Nimoy with the last one. And he gets another one in. He beats uh, Shatner. He's done more Trek than Shatner ever has, or probably will. Okay, that's fine. I like the scene. When I saw Nimoy up there, it made me miss Nimoy as yes. Spock. <laughs> so yes. it kind of went against it. And honestly, this 
it also reminded me how much I enjoyed Star Trek II again. <laughs> I mean, yes. honestly, that, that comes up in a few minutes again. And to have Nimoy there, he honestly has this in his back pocket. So one could ask, well, if you have this advantage, why don't you use it? You know, ask the guy about this. On the other hand, you're doing something different with Khan. You're doing something different with this universe. And this is the first time I thought this, and again, it comes up later in a few minutes. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Go somewhere different with this. Don't rely on the past so much. Why even have Nimoy in this? It wasn't very necessary because the information that Nimoy presumably gives the new Spock, he gets by himself in a few minutes. He doesn't get the way to defeat Khan from Nimoy from what I see how they defeat Khan. We never know exactly what is said because they cut right. away mid-conversation. Now, with Nimoy showing up, am I the only one who felt like they actually went to Nimoy's house, put up a green screen behind him and filmed him on a sofa? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they filmed it the same day they did that car commercial. <laughs> <laughs> He's better in the car commercial than he is here. Yeah, I enjoy him still. Even now in, in his golden years, I feel like he's got something that I like watching. And I give it to the scene, a mulligan, because I want this moment. Because I want to see old Spock telling young Spock how to do the part. I, I, I just wish it had more purpose. It felt like a weird place to do it in the movie so long into it. And it felt like the information given was completely unnecessary. It was like, and ladies and gentlemen, Leonard Nimoy! Yeah, it's completely like that. This movie, the second half particularly, is filled with those kinds of moments. It does do one other thing, though. And it was something that had completely gone absent from my thinking in this entire movie. What happened to the Vulcans? They created a new planet. We're told that he's beaming in from new Vulcans. And that was kind of cool to know that they're rebuilding, to know that there's a new planet with however many are left. But I got to get to some Ponfar soon and repopulate. But I did appreciate that little detail as well. I imagine New Vulcan will be featured in later movies. Again, tipping a hand, when they mentioned New Vulcan a few scenes before we talked to Spock, I knew Nimoy was coming back at that moment. But the moment Nimoy shows up, it's like we're in a different movie. It's like we're in the Mirror Mirror Star Trek universe of Star Trek Two, And that continues through the end. I think the screenwriters, much like us, wondered, well, now what do we do that we kill the villain and there's still a climax needed? We can just make jokes about what was done before. I did not think that this movie would become a parody of Wrath of Khan, but that's, to me, how this last 20 minutes plays. Can I just say, I hated it. Hated it. I hated they switched Kirk for Spock and having Kirk on the other side of the glass. I hated every moment of that, and the button on it was the screaming of Khan's name. And I, Ugh. my eyes rolled, and I was going with the movie for a long time, even though I had these problems. When that scene happened, and when he's going through the rack director and the whole thing, how it ended, I'm like, no, no, no. Again, it's the whole thing of, you can't have your cake and eat it too, Abrams. You can't constantly say how we're going in a new direction, and then all of a sudden call back to something so iconic for us. Now, I am a big fan of rebooting and all that kind of stuff we were talking about, but this time they went too far and there's no need for it, and it pissed me off. Boldly go where no one's gone before. Isn't that their mantra? They're going exactly where they've gone before. They don't have vision about where to go. I thought we'd be on the five-year mission by now. We're still stuck in Starfleet. They're still making con jokes. The word was pathetic when he shouted con. I thought that that was a real fanboyization of a way of giving a climax. This was not the climax they needed to come up with. This is the funny or die parody you put out to promote the movie. It's not what you actually do. I kind of liked it. I'm apparently standing alone, yes. but the way I would look at this... 
is it's like a cover band playing the hits of, say, the Beatles or some band that is long broken up. You can't see that original band anymore, so you see this cover band do it. They're putting their slightly own spin on it. The problem is they're aping better material. Mm -hmm. At this point, seeing them reenact The Wrath of Khan makes me realize, hey, The Wrath of Khan was really good. It also makes me realize I can quote every bit of dialogue, because when Kirk sacrifices himself going into the reactor core and then comes back and is sitting at the glass, I expect him to go, the ship out of danger. You know, just line for line <laughs> reciting it. It was pretty close, though. I mean, it was. As, as someone that's a casual, has not gone back to con since we did it in our retrospective, I felt like the intentionally the beats with Scotty being put down and all. Was it McCoy in the original? Yes, McCoy is put down, and sorry, Doctor, I have no time to discuss this logically. Here, yes. punch a Scotty in the face. Although, it's the same thing. Sir, you fled the whole compartment! I mean, Scotty was given just about identical dialogue, and I'm hearing, too, in my head while seeing what they're doing yes. with Into Darkness, and that's a huge problem. I kind of like what they're echoing to, but I'll tell you, there's... Two movies that always get me to well up. Believe it or not, Star Trek 2009, I have a hard time watching that opening without welling up over George Kirk's death. And Star Trek 2, even though I know he comes back, I have a hard time not welling up over Spock's death. Here, who the hell is Chris Pine? He's a Kirk imitator. I'm not going to weep for this man. And when he's dying, though, I'm sitting here like, okay, you're really killing him? You're really going to do that after we've spent two movies setting him up? And we talked last time about how we want Captain Kirk in that chair. So who cares if he goes cadet to Captain? We want Captain Kirk in that chair. Are you really going to kill him and make it Captain Spock? Would you do that? Oh, no. We're going to completely undermine any emotional resonance the scene might have had with the most bullshit lame-ass retcon ever. The problem I had with it, Arnie, is not only were they not going to kill Kirk, and I knew that they couldn't kill Kirk, they couldn't even wait for the next movie to revive him, and I knew it was coming because of the opening scene. Yes. They totally telegraphed yes. how they're going to revive Kirk with the opening scene, and then McCoy, with the Tribble earlier, when he was already figured it out, and the Tribble didn't come alive remarkably until right then, but that's okay. <laughs> but the point is, they telegraphed the entire ending. It may be because I'm watching... Return of the Living Dead Necropolis for our donation series this Friday. But when he talks about a necrotic tissue tribble, am I the only one thinking zombie tribble? <laughs> you are the only one, but now that only you one. say it, I never will not think that. <laughs> they didn't need the tribble other than doing yet another in-joke. Yeah, they told us already how this was going to get fixed. It was pretty blatant that he has magic blood that can heal anything and do anything, and I knew how they were going to save Kirk, and so watching this whole protracted death scene was just unemotional, even though they tried. They really did try with the tearing up, but I don't like the Kirk-Spock relationship. I'm not feeling like friends are losing each other, and I know how they're going to fix it, so it's leaving me cold. But once Quinto shouts Khan and becomes Kirk and becomes the angry whatever, boy, do I not like it. I liked that he shouted Khan instead of Kirk. It does not live up to Shatner. I mean, that is the lie. It's ballsy to try and replicate it. Quinto is no Shatner. <laughs> That's an insult, too. In most places, that'll start a bar fight. But... <laughs> but I like that Spock gives in to rage. What we have here is the cementing of a friendship. And here's where Spock realizes from this moment on, he always shall be Kirk's friend. 
I'm really happy you got all that from the movie, and I think that's what the movie's going for. But because of all this stuff that Sue and I just talked about, it all rang false to me. I don't think that was earned. We talked about earlier about how the friendship is earned. In the original Star Trek II, when they had the sacrifice, it still gets me. I get emotional when I watch that. I really do like that scene in Star Trek II every single time I watch it. But here, I don't think it was as earned because their friendship isn't as cemented. And I didn't watch the original series, Arnie. I only watched the movies growing up as a kid and know that was very well. So in these two movies with Kirk and Spock's friendship, to have that at the end of this movie, I thought it was false because they didn't earn it yet. But I think they're trying to get everyone to go there. And that's great. It works, but not just for me. And Arnie, it answers your question. You asked earlier, would people that were not into that original movie get into this? Obviously, I've seen the original movie, but I feel like this answers it. No, because now everything is about what was done in that earlier movie. This moment is hollow. It does not work at all. It's There's a chasing its tail quality to everything here that it just really irked me. It irked me in Prometheus. It irks me here. They're replicating things that don't need to be done. They're doing it less successfully. And they're not giving me the setups and the things that I thought and deserved to get here. This whole phony baloney, the ship crashes and Khan's running around London. Who cares if he's running around London? I actually think he was running around San Francisco, right? Because he angled the ship towards Starfleet headquarters. Oh, how funny. I just presumed it was the same city because it's shot the same way. It's all that bluish. Every time we're on (laughs) Earth, it's this blue-gray. But you're right. I think I did see a Golden Gate. The thing that gets me about this ending is we forget about Khan, right? Because Mm. in the original Star Trek II, Khan dies as he sets off the Genesis torpedo. The whole thing of Spock saving the ship is post-Khan death. It is his final act. He's trying to kill them all. Here, Khan is still alive on the ship, and that is never leaving my head. While we're seeing all of this reenactment of Star Trek II on the Enterprise, I'm like, is Khan dead? Is this the climax? Because when you have this big emotional pause of a death scene, I don't expect, oh yeah, we're in the middle of a climax. Let's get back to that action. You're supposed to have a minute to mourn. Right. Kirk just stops the Enterprise from crashing to the ground, but Khan is still very much present. Yeah. So the fact that we have this now prolonged jumping speeder car to speeder car, and Brock, you said you thought Revenge of the Sith earlier. I'm thinking Attack of the Clones here. How can you not think Attack of the Clones here? He jumps from moving car to moving car. He actually jumps off a car and waits for the car to catch up to him, just like Anakin Skywalker did in the beginning of Attack of the Clones. I had stopped actually watching the movie at this point. I was looking around me (laughs) to see how people were processing this, and if they were having the problems that I were. And it's funny. When I turned to my left, people were smiling and nodding and going, yeah! And then when I turned to my right, people were like shaking their head and going, hmm. It was like a a devil and an angel on both shoulders. And I do feel like that hovers over here. They wanted to have so many in-jokes. They wanted to be so clever and so self-referential. It's at at the detriment of their own movie. Yeah, this whole end battle with Spock and Khan, it rings so false. And I'm so upset with Abrams because it seems technology does whatever the plot demands it to do. I can't beam up, but I can beam down! Okay, that's stupid. (laughs) How about this? They said they can't do it because they're moving too fast. Didn't Chekhov was able to beam them when they were moving very, very fast in the last movie? Mm, Wait a second. Yes, they did. Yeah. And they were moving faster than cars were moving on Coruscant. I mean, San Francisco. You know what I mean? So it's bullshit. 
Yeah, I have some real problems with the conveniences of everything and how Spock being... I like that they give Uhura something to do, but it also robs Spock of being heroic. Why is Uhura's stun gun take four shots to drop Khan, but Scotty's takes one? Because Khan was faking. Yeah, I don't think it ever really stunned him. He's Superman, you know, he can't be hurt. I thought he was stunned for a minute. He was faking the entire time after he was stunned. That's what I took it as when he was still standing later on. Yeah, I agree. I took it as you did. I thought he was stunned briefly right. on the ship. But now the only thing I can take is he was faking. He expected the betrayal and needed the betrayal so that they'd take their attention off of him. Plus, he's adrenalized. You know, it's like he's been running and leaping and all of this. It would Well, he just crushed someone's head on the Enterprise. So That's true. Yeah, he's always kind of angry. But, uh... <laughs> That is Khan's secret. He's always angry. I'm wondering, is Uhura turned on by this? You know, her whole beef with Spock <laughs> during this whole movie is just like, you're so unemotional. What about us? Well, here it is, baby. Do you still want to date it? See, I would have honestly liked an exploration of what is damaged in Uhura's psyche that she would date such an emotionally unavailable man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to think there are women who do that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, but there's usually a reason, like a bad father figure or something. If you're going to give Uhura an uh, exploration, they did this in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. A woman falls in love with Data after her divorce, and it's a big exploration of what would make a woman fall in love with a guy who has no emotion and can't love her back. That should be Uhura's arc here, not, oh god, you beat the crap out of him. Do me. <laughs> yeah, particularly since we need his blood. <laughs> Now what's going to happen? Is every disease cured? Now that they have these people that are magical under glass, they keep them alive. I think it's important that they say the humane thing to do with terrorists is to arrest them, to jail them, to put them in cryo sleep. And what, exploit them? Is this Guantanamo? Are we just going to just sap their blood and farm it out so that we can cure all illnesses on Earth? And is it just Khan's blood? I mean, they had 72 other people. When McCoy is saying, get one out of cryo sleep, I thought it's, we're going to use this other dude's blood. But apparently Khan has magical blood. They don't even test the other 72's blood. They just freeze Kirk so he doesn't suffer brain death. I do think it's weird we never saw anybody else in those tubes. Didn't you think they'd all open up here at the finale and we'd get an army or something? How could they not? You have to raise stakes, don't you? Well, yeah. According to Abrams, you don't. No. See, I thought, you know, in the original Space Seed, didn't they put him on a planet and he got to rule the planet and all that kind of stuff, right? So when they had them teaming up earlier in the movie, I thought, okay, so Kirk's going to put him on this planet, let him rule on that planet by himself. And what they could do at the end was when they release the 72 guys, then the army can come after the Enterprise and that'd be a really cool ending, right? But they didn't go there. They kept him in, under cryo sleep so you can use the villain again in future sequels, which they should probably do. They should probably have the con people come after them but at the ending of this movie to have those 72 people coming out that would be almost too much for this movie wouldn't it be cool if they shot them to a moon so no one could use them to exploit as you just said Stuart? and then of course that backfires that'd be a really good sequel yeah they have it in the option i do feel by not killing con they're saying we may not be done with this this is obviously going to have more entries i could see con coming back i could see these tubes do opening for the future they knew that that was too big to handle for the last 10, 15 minutes of this movie. And so they don't do it. But you're right. The climax we do get of Quinto socking him, that won't sit right. I did like that all the fist fights, though, were very 60s track. They used these big roundhouse punches. It felt like an old Western when they were fighting. I thought that was a nice callback. At the end, it did. But when they were in the ship with Scotty and Kirk and Khan, they were using really cool moves. No, Khan was. 
Kirk was too. Kirk was really dodging and stuff. It was really kind of cool. Yeah, but he also did some big sweeping punches. I thought it was definitely a callback to the old one, the way Shatner used to fight. But we finally are going to get it, right? They're graduated. Kirk is, of course, revived. He's saved by the magic blood. And they're going to get on the ship. I saw Blondie on there. She's going with them. <laughs> They're doing it in reverse. It's kind of funny. You know, the original Trek series, it was three years of a show, and then they, as old people, had six movies. Now we're going to get that five-year mission. I think it's funny that it's taken two movies to get there. I really like they alluded to it really early in the movie that Kirk was excited about a five-year mission, and then they get to go on at the end. Also, Stuart, it gives them an excuse. If Abrams doesn't come back because he's doing Star Wars or something, they could have these guys wait ten years and do a sequel because they're on their five-year mission. It gives them an out not to do another Star Trek movie right away. You're right. They could not do that at all. We could skip ahead. I don't think they're going to do that. I do think they're going to get to that Klingon war. Honest to God, I thought that we would see those tribal people at the end of this. You know, (laughs) We saw them sketching a starship into the red sand. I thought maybe the real ending to this movie would be tripods landing on London and suddenly we're in War of the Worlds. They did have the red weed. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Star Trek Into Darkness? Stuart. Well, ask me in four years, and I might give it a recommend, (laughs) but I'm exactly where I was before. I think that there are things here that are passable, that are adequate. I think this is a lesser movie than 2009. I think that will always be the case for me. I will always see this previous one as a much better film. I was excited to see a movie in which they were unburdened by that origin story. I was excited to see Cumberbatch as Khan. They are squandered opportunities. It was just kind of the thing they felt like they had to get through before they could get to the movie that I keep wanting them to make and do believe they will make one day. I think that I will really like one day one of these new version tracks, but they haven't made one that I love yet, and this is a mild not recommend. It's cold and self-referential to a fault. I recall that science geek with a boob job. I feel like she really, really ought to go back and get to the laboratory again. Arnie. It's a recommend. Absolutely, it's a recommend. The problem is it undermines itself a little bit at the end. It is not as good as the last one, which I hold up as my favorite of the treks. And it's certainly not as good as Wrath of Khan, which I hold up as the best of the treks. It's not my favorite just because it does have some silliness with Carol Marcus and things like that. It doesn't hold up in David's 80s perm. But the problem is you don't reference the best if you're not beating the best. And they become so con-referential that I sit there the whole time going, yeah, I really like con. (laughs) (laughs) And I like what they do here. I'm glad that they have fixed some of the problems I had with the first movie. They have character moments. They don't have gaping, gaping plot holes like, what was Nero doing for 25 years? They have given our characters a chance to grow, a chance to shine, but they undermine themselves with this ending. Death shouldn't be easy. Death should have cost and consequences to have this magic blood that will revive anyone. It's just as stupid as Superman turning the Earth backwards. And seeing Quinto and Pine reverse the roles of Spock and Kirk from Star Trek II makes me realize all the emotion this one lacked that that one had. It's a recommend, but it's not a perfect film. It's not one of the best treks. But it's an enjoyable time. I think you'll have fun. I think it's got good action. I think it's got good laughs. I think it's got good performances. It's just a little weak on the script writing. That said, we've reviewed a lot of Damon Lindelof scripts on Now Playing. Best Damon Lindelof script yet. 
I'm right there with both of you. The problem here is, and I already called it out earlier, I was getting flashbacks of Quantum of Solace here and the way they structured the movie with, you know, we thought we dealt with this, blah, blah, blah. But also in that I was watching Quantum of Solace and there's not much there that I really, really, really enjoyed, but I had trouble saying not recommend to it because it was so much better than a lot of other Bonds we've seen. And they did a lot of things right. The action scenes worked. There were really great moments. Same thing with Star Trek Into Darkness. There are a lot of great moments here. There are a lot of good performances. I liked a lot of the action scenes. I had no problem with them going back to Khan and trying to do what they did with Kirk and Spock and McCoy in the first movie with Khan. Try to reinvent the character for this new Star Trek. The problem I had was that I felt one step ahead of this movie the entire time and the end with the reversal of Wrath of Khan. It really pissed me off. And not that I'm the biggest old Trek lover and I'm they're betraying the old one. No, I just felt stupid. If you're going to go somewhere different with these characters, go somewhere different. Don't call back another film. Arnie, you said it perfectly about if you're going to reference something, do it better. And I don't think it was really a parody so much as lame. So by the time they got to that moment, I was already on the fence with the movie, but that pushed me over the edge. I'm going to give it a mild not recommend as well. It was so much good and so much fun to be had here, but overall, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And it's better than other Trek movies we've seen in this series. Like, I would say it's better than Insurrection. I enjoy it more than Insurrection. Definitely enjoyed it more than Star Trek V. But there's too much I can't forgive for this movie that I have to give it a on the weaker side of not recommend. Yeah, I was curious about that. You were such a big fan of that last one. My feeling as I walked out of this was, well, if you really loved that last one, you'll probably give this the pass. But it's really interesting to hear you brought say not necessarily yeah i love the last one and i rewatched it two weeks ago and i had so much fun watching it again and yes i listened to our old podcast and arnie even accused me of going in there wanting to like it so much that i'm willing to give it so many passes the difference there was the entire time they were taking me for a ride so when you had problems with this and that here and there the overall ride was still enjoyable the first half of this movie again i was so one step ahead of it because i knew what was going on or i thought it was tipping its hands so much by the time they got to that horrible part with the switch of Khan, I had enough. And so they didn't engender enough goodwill in me in the first half to let it pass for the second half. So it's a mild not recommend. Kind of like we had with A Nightmare on Elm Street. There was enough good in the first half that it carried me for the second half to give it a mild recommend. I have to go on mild not recommend for Star Trek Into Darkness. And then the question becomes, watching the Star Treks this time, I can't help but think of all the meta-knowledge I have. We asked when we did Star Trek 2009, how would we feel if J.J. Abrams were doing this to Star Wars? (laughs) Well, (laughs) funny that. (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute. He's doing Star Wars? What? (laughs) And I can't help but watch this and think so much about Star Wars. And not that Star Wars is going to be a reboot, because we know he's doing Episode 7. He's doing a sequel. But there's been talk of bringing back the old, and I mean that as in elderly actors. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, they got CGI. It'll fix it. It'll be like the next day. It'll be Tron. Yeah. So if this is going to be the new Star Wars, if it's going to be this level of energy and action and nothing is said unless you're screaming while running down a hall like you brought to the first one, I'm a little worried. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little worried about what this means for Star Wars. And I'm a little worried for what this means for Star Trek. 2009 made me a Trek fan again. And with Abrams leaving, and the fact that this movie is projected to only pull in 60 domestic this weekend. I heard 100. They wanted 100. They forecast 100. 
it's going to be in the 60s. Compare that to Iron Man's box office. It makes me wonder, with Abrams leaving, will there be a third Trek movie with this cast? This cast feels like Jackie Earl Haley as Freddy or so many other reboots. It feels like it's something forgettable. It doesn't feel iconic Trek. Iconic Trek will always be the 60s series and the next generation, and I don't think they've captured lightning in a bottle here. I think if it is 10 years till the next Trek movie, you're not going to see Quinto and Pine back at it. Nobody loves them like they love Shatner and Nimoy. You're going to see yet another reboot. It's not really fair to compare them to that because they also had the TV show all the time that went past between the TV show and all the fandom building up. It was a different time with the, before the internet. All that stuff you know already. And I think they could retire this series for a little while and bring it back and bring the same cast back because you know, who knows where their careers are going to be. Furthermore, I bet you all are under three picture deals. So they're all going to have to come back. There's a timeline on those deals, though. A decade. Okay. I want to bring up one thing, though. You have a little doubt on J.J. Abrams with Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars fan, big Star Wars fan. I think everybody knows that. And I look at J.J. Abrams, and I see him. He revitalized Mission Impossible with Mission Impossible 3 after the dud of Mission Impossible 2. And he came back to Star Trek and took a dead franchise and made it relevant and fun to watch again. So if you're looking for a person to go into Star Wars after three movies that underwhelmed a lot of the fandom, even though they made a lot of money, they are thought of to be lesser films of the original trilogy. I'm not saying anything off the beaten path on that one there. So if anyone can come back into an older franchise that has seen better days and do something great with it, J.J. Abrams has the track record. And when he came into Star Trek all those years ago, he admitted being a Star Wars fan, and a lot of people said Star Trek by Star Wars Universe's beats in the last movie, and they had the old Rand for Vulcan, blah, blah, blah. So I think he is the right man for the job, Arnie. I really, really do. If anyone in Hollywood right now should be directing a Star Wars movie, it should be J.J. Abrams. More to the point, I think Abrams' sensibilities are more Star Wars than Star Trek. I feel like when I watch these new movies, I'm getting more of that Lucasian vibe. It's almost to the discredit of what Roddenberry wanted to do. I understand they wanted to hip it up. It's not your father's Star Trek. I'm not even sure it's Star Trek, really. It really does feel like Star Wars. And I think that, yes, he probably will find it easier to do what he does in that universe than here. I agree with you he'll find it easier because what's very interesting to me is something I read after watching this movie. Remember when Star Trek 2009 came out, there was immediate talk of we're going to do another Star Wars TV series and J.J. Abrams is going to do all these films and everything's going to happen and... It all kind of fizzled. It took four years to get to Into Darkness, whereas I think we were promised two in 2009, three at the most. It took four. And now he's over at Star Wars, and they're talking about, we're going to be doing a Star Wars live-action TV series. We're going to be doing a Star Wars animated TV series. We're doing a trilogy of Star Wars films with other Star Wars films. It feels that this is what Abrams pitched as Star Trek. And what happened was Star Trek isn't owned by Paramount. It's joint between Paramount and CBS. Paramount gets the films. CBS gets the TV. And so Abrams didn't have the full control. One of the things I've read is why he jumped ship to Star Wars is Lucasfilm owns it all. He can take that exact same thing he wanted to do for Trek and do it over with Star Wars instead, where he'll have more control than CBS was allowing. Clearly, Avengers is the model. You know, they're going to have a TV series this fall. They have the comic books. They have everything. I mean, Marvel really has shown how you can maximize a franchise into all areas of 
consumption. And yeah, I think Star Wars has led that way. I think that it has been that. And I think in Abrams' hand, it can continue to be that. But we're talking about Trek here and its future. I definitely wouldn't say any eulogies right now. I do not think this new cast is dead. I definitely feel like you can make a Trek movie without Abrams, and you can't make it without Pine and Quinto, at least not without one more. I definitely think we're going to get an Abrams-less third part of this. Yeah, like if you remember the first two Harry Potter movies with the same director, and they brought the third one and it brought new blood to the series, Yeah, and again with Abrams and Mission Impossible, there has been a track record that with new blood after, it can work, and I think a new director on Trek could be just what the doctor ordered. Yeah, it may be needed. I feel like after someone's done it for a little while, I've seen what you can do and I've appreciated it. Let's give somebody else a try. I think it would be fun to see this cast with the new director and see if the problems that I have with some of this cast are them or the way that they were directed to be. I think that all of that will be solved when we get another director in the chair. I'll put this out there. As I've recommended both of these reboot films, I hope we do get a third one. And I'm perfectly fine without it being Abrams. I'd like to see some of the the behind-the-scenes crew carry over, maybe... Not the writers. Please don't get those writers. (laughs) (laughs) I think that they did pretty good, and if you had another director guiding their hand, maybe they'd do even better. So, I hope we get a third one, and I hope it is soon enough that this can become a long-lasting franchise and become iconic Trek, like some that has come before. I mean, I have no doubt that come Monday, they'll announce Star Trek 3. We'll see what happens. They always do that. But right now, this to me is sitting around the level of memorability of, say, Star Trek Enterprise with Scott Bakula. So in the four years between this one and the next Star Trek movie, what will our listeners listen to it now playing? Well, if they donate, they can be hearing us this Friday talk zombies. We are doing a big zombie spring donation series because Evil Dead had a remake this year that came into theaters. We've reviewed it. And later this summer, I got to see a trailer for it before Star Trek Into Darkness, World War Z. Yeah, but unfortunately, this Friday, you're going to get Return of the Living Dead 4. I'm not sure that that's the one that you want to start with. But if you donate, you're going to get the whole batch. And I do think we've had a lot of fun just discussing zombies and pseudo-zombies and what have you. It's been great. I'm not going to say this Friday's been great, but it was a fun recording, and I hope you guys can join us to hear it. Yes, what we do is donation drives. This show costs quite a bit of money to produce and to go see the movies and the ticket prices, and we have no sponsors, we have no advertisers. We rely on listener support solely. We're like PBS. If you don't fund us, we don't have a way to broadcast. And we're not selling these podcasts. These are a thank you, like a tote bag from PBS to those who donate. And those who donate $10 or more, a silver level donation, get five bonus podcasts, the four Evil Dead reviews, plus later this summer, World War Z. Those who donate $25 or more are gold level donors. You get all of the Evil Dead's World War Z, plus five Return of the Living Dead reviews and... I promise this will be good. 28 days and 28 weeks later. Ooh, I haven't seen those. Listen to find out if you should. And then next week, we will be back questing for peace with Superman. (laughs) And Nuclear Man. (laughs) Nuclear Man could have gone into that reactor and fixed it without dying and then being brought back to life. That is true. Although he'd be in the shade, so maybe he'd fall asleep. The Dude of Steel next week on Now Playing. Till then, folks, enjoy and live long and prosper. Dudes. Space, the final frontier. 
these are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Your ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another podcast movie review. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures. All rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. This is Arnie. Have I got your attention now? Sorry, Arnie, you're just not, you just don't have the vocal, you just don't have the pipes that Benedict has. Nice try, though. You're this try- is Arnie! <laughs> have I got your attention now? <laughs> like- uh, Arnie, it'll never happen. But again, <laughs> thanks for trying. <laughs> I think there was talk of finding someone like a con, a nemesis from one of the 60s episodes. <laughs> when you said like a con, I thought it meant shock a con. That'd be really funny. <laughs> <laughs> If I could rap, you know I would do I feel for you. <laughs> of this entire cast, the only ones I've seen since Last Trek and now are Zoe Saldana and Simon Pegg. You've seen Chekhov, too. He was the star of Fright Night, but that poor kid in that movie kind of <laughs> was forgotten. And Arnie, you saw This Means War with Chris Pine and Reese Witherspoon. I know you loved that one. I did not see that movie. <laughs> Oh, Arnie, you have to lie to us. It's okay. We know it's you on watched- my Netflix queue, but I have not seen it. I actually watched it, and I actually liked Pine in it, but that's a different review for a different day. Um, we'll actually- see him later in Jack Ryan, but I have not seen him since Star Trek. Arnie, if you haven't seen Sherlock yet, go to Netflix and watch it. It's fantastic. I'm a little busy with Superman movies right now. I'll put that on my <laughs> hiatus list, <laughs> along with This Means War. <laughs> but... A technical note, Arnie, you said frantic. Do you mean frenetic or frantic? It was frantic an actual uh, word that I'm unaware of either. <laughs> <laughs> no, I probably meant frenetic. So I, I want to give uh, you a chance to read ah, that if you want. Frantic. Um, according to Urban Dictionary, it's slang for frantic and hectic, so I can leave it in. <laughs> Dude, you so lucked out on that. <laughs> See, he's not wrong. He's him. <laughs> so it's bullshit uh it's bull it's malarkey excuse me we're not cursing on this podcast uh, we it's can malarkey. say shit they say shit all over this movie okay it's bullshit <laughs> it's just as stupid as superman turning the earth backwards and but not as stupid as superman 4 preview for next week <laughs>
<laughs> Nothing is as stupid as <laughs> Superman 4, Stuart. 